Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 192. My name's Terry Frost and this time around we're looking at some 70s and 80s cinema. First off we're going with one of the seminal black exploitation movies, Superfly from 1972, starring Ron O'Neill. And then we're going ahead a decade and a, a year, so 11 years basically, to look at John Badham's 1982 thriller, Blue Thunder, starring Roy Scheider, Daniel Stern and Malcolm McDowell. So we've kind of got two different kinds of action films from about a decade apart, which show how much change there was during that time between 1972 and 1983, I think it is. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and the show will begin. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule. More than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates. Or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. How is everybody? Um, We're doing fine here. I've shaken the cold, which is not a bad thing at all. And Sal's out of hospital. We I picked her up on Wednesday and she's doing fine at home. So things have gone on quite well since then. I've watched some movies, chilled out, I'm eating healthier, I'm chasing Pokemons, all is well with the world. Well, you know, except for Trump and what happened in Germany and what happened in France and what happened ongoing in Syria and the fact that the Conservatives got into government here in Australia. Apart from that, the world is fine. Oh yeah, and global warming, the last hurrah of neoliberalism and all of those other issues. So it's probably a good idea that we sit back, hide from all that shit and watch some movies. But then even movies aren't really safe from the culture wars and uh, the ideological wars these days. And uh, I'm just going to talk about the movies that I watched and I'll kind of touch on that just a little bit more when I do. So uh, I haven't watched a hell of a lot, but what I watched is kind of interesting in a way. Uh, I did see Ghostbusters. Sal and I saw Ghostbusters in Gold Class, which is the posh cinemas, where they don't have too many seats in the cinemas and they all recline, and people come and bring you food in the cinema when you want it. And uh, basically, yeah, it's it's definitely a 1% kind of experience doing Gold Class. We got some free tickets thanks to a friend. And so we saw Ghostbusters, which I enjoyed. I think it's a nice kind of reiteration of the Ghostbusters thing. It stays true to the slightly anarchic and anti-authoritarian motif from the original two films. And it works. I I like it. The special effects, of course, are state-of-the-art. It's very good. The ensemble works really, really well. Melissa McCarthy, um, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones work really well. And that's where I'm going to touch on the... um, impact that movies are having on the wider cultural wars that are going on out there uh there's been a lot of problems for leslie jones on twitter she had to quit twitter because of the trolling and the particularly race-based trolling that she got on social media this of course dates back to the original announcement that they were going to do an all-female ghostbusters and 
uh, the kind of troll boys came out and said, no, no, you can't do that. You're raping my childhood because rape's always a good thing to use about pop culture, of course. Using the word rape is, of course, an incredible and kind of ugly overreaction to things. It's like if I drop a sandwich on the ground and say that that totally raped and ruined my life, you'd say I was exaggerating. It's the same thing with this. This is a movie. It's a pop culture thing. It's an entertainment. It's a bit of fun. And for people to send death threats and race-based taunts and idiocies is really, really wrong. There's also the, um, there's a new concept for me, at least. Uh, I haven't heard about it. I only heard about it when I was researching Superfly. So this all relates in. There's a concept out there called colorism, which I'm reading it off Wikipedia here is prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group, but not always. And one of the arguments has been brought up by Ebony Magazine, I believe, with the Leslie Jones um, issue with Ghostbusters and all of the um, attacks that she's had put upon her, is that there's a certain aspect of colorism there. Leslie Jones has very dark skin and she does have strongly African physiology. She's a tall woman, she's large, she's got an African facial structure and for that reason the attacks have been so much worse on her, not so much by other people of colour but of white people. They've really kind of gone to town and there's a lot of talk about gorillas and ugly things like that involved in the attacks on Leslie Jones. And Ebony Magazine makes the argument, which I can see some validity to, that had they kind of cast a lighter-skinned person like Maya Rudolph, who's biracial, in the Patty character in Ghostbusters, then there wouldn't have been so much of the racially-based attacks as there is on Leslie Jones. And I can see their point there. I mean, they know a lot more about uh, the kind of racial undertones of American culture than I do so but that sounds right to me it sounds like it's an accurate thing and it's something that really does cloud the skies of popular culture these days we all want to enjoy good movies we will like tentpole movies we like special effects movies we like those kind of large things as much as we like the small intimate intelligent thoughtful and literary movies we also like the big ones as well and to have this kind of cultural trolling and overt and ugly racism involved in what's essentially entertainment is kind of disgusting well it's not kind of disgusting it's incredibly disgusting it's wrong it's nasty and it shows that there are a certain number of people out there who really do have sick twisted well, not, I'm not going to say sick and twisted because, you know, that's simplistic stuff. What they have is psychiatric issues that aren't being dealt with. I'll be honest about that. It's You can kind of say these people are evil. You can kind of go with all of those theologically based values. But for me, what it is, is people with mental illnesses at various levels who have unlimited access to the world thanks to the internet. No, I've got I'm a big supporter of the internet. Fuck this podcast goes out of the internet. But we really don't have a means yet of handling effectively that kind of hatred in the public sphere that the internet has become. And I think it's something that's going to be looked into. I don't see censorship as a way of doing that, but I see calling people out on it uh I know that a number of women who are attacked for actually having an opinion on the internet 
do name and shame the people involved. In fact, here in Australia, uh, there has been a few court cases and there's also been some people who've lost their jobs because of the kind of sexist and nasty and um, criminal hate crime, hate speech, that they've decided to put out on the internet. But we've also got to remember... Um, I, I had a discussion about this on my Facebook page, particularly as it related to the Leslie Jones situation. And somebody who was a friend of a friend on Facebook came on board and started victim blaming and said, oh, well, she shouldn't have done this and she shouldn't have done that. And she was stupid to do this. I ended up blocking the guy because he just wouldn't listen when I told him to calm down or get the fuck off my Facebook. But it's a bit like the people who say, Yes, well, this woman was raped, but she shouldn't have been wearing provocative clothing. Fuck that. People should be able to wear what they like, and they should be safe when they do so. And people should be able to put themselves out there in the public sphere, do a very good bit of acting in a comedy, action, supernatural movie, and not be attacked for their race and their appearance. That's incredibly wrong. It's not only wrong, it's hurtful. And it's also got wider implications as well. Um, one of the interesting things about the Ghostbusters is how, by doing the, the new iteration of it, they've actually done a female buddy movie, which doesn't rely on women lusting after guys. Yes, there's a comedy bit between Kristen Wiig and the Chris Hemsworth character, Kevin. But in general, it's a very feminist movie while being very funny and being very good as well. And I like that. I like the fact that in popular culture leaving the trolls aside for a moment we have the room to have that kind of an action film with um, women bonding together and, and being friends and achieving great and important things it sends a really strong message to female children and to young girls and to young women and to older women as well that the only limitations are those you impose on yourself and you've just got to get out there and, and do the things you want to do and live your life on your own terms. I think that's a very important thing to say, but there are people, of course, and most of them piss standing up, who find that threatening and find that wrong and will actively and nastily fight against it. So fuck the haters, fuck the racist and the sexist pricks on Facebook. If you go on my Facebook page and you start espousing that shit, I'm going to block you so fast that your nose will bleed because I'm not going to give a forum to that kind of misinformed and wrong-headedness. So that's my little rant for this podcast, and I have been doing them a bit lately. Let me know if you don't want me to do them, and I'll still do them anyway. But to get back to my essential point, I enjoyed Ghostbusters. I think it's a bit of fun. Uh, Sally enjoyed it as well. A number of my female friends enjoyed it. A number of my female friends fell in love with Kate McKinnon during the watching of that movie as well which is perfectly valid i mean a, a sexy kind of lesbian geek is something the cinema has absolutely been waiting for and uh, i found it really enjoyable and had a good time watching it did watch the other we watched the other movie that came out the other tentpole kind of genre film that came out this week star trek beyond with the usual suspects starring in it along with idris elba and yeah that works too i think it's a good honest 50th anniversary star trek movie it's uh the action sequences are good justin lim i've got some problems with as a director he's very good on the action things but i'm not sure that he quite hits the character notes as well as some other people do but he for an action film director he's an interesting guy in the sense that 
He does these action films which end up being about family, using, of course, the Fast and Furious series as the main example of that. But Star Trek Beyond, I think it's the best of the three in a lot of ways. I think it goes back to the fun and the philosophy of the original Star Trek, that idea of the Federation as not being a militaristic um, organisation, but being about exploring and sharing culture. I think that that's an incredibly important idea to set out there, particularly at the moment with the Trumps of the world doing what they do. I think that one of the interesting things about recent cinema, and even and it doesn't matter which kind of cinema it is, is that they're starting to, in subtle ways, address that idea of inclusiveness and of acceptance and of embracing of differences among people. I think that that's an incredibly important thing to do at the moment. It's just crazily important to do. And the culture wars are going to be won with reason, I think, even though the people opposing a widening of acceptance in culture um, are quite loud and are at some levels resistant to reason. I think that reason is the way to go. You've got to provide evidence and you've got to live the things you believe. And I think that that's one of the strengths that's been with Star Trek all along is that acceptance of diversity and that acceptance of difference and the, the kind of embracing of novelty of new things of exploring the world and the universe i think that's what star trek has been about from day one and i think that this movie is part of that so i'm going to take a break now when i get back it's time for some superfly this dude is bad and he ain't just fly he's superfly yeah superfly when it comes to women they come to him but it's still not enough he wants a big score a million in cash yeah the big one this is a chance and i want to take it now before i have to kill somebody before somebody ices me what kind of money are we talking about I want his ass out working. Back with now, then I took all this chance for nothing. And I go back to being nothing. Work at some jive job for chump change day after day. Look, if that's all I'm supposed to do, then they're going to have to kill me because that ain't enough. Ain't I clean? Bad machine. Super cool. Super mean. Dealing good for the man. Super fly. Here I stand. Secret stash. Heavy bread. Baddest bitches in the bed. I'm your pusher man. Can a super fly Harlem dude beat the system? He's got a plan to stick it to the man. He's super hood, super high, super dude, super fly. Okay, so this is a trailer from Superfly, a 1972 exploitation movie directed by Gordon P- 
Parks Jr., uh, written by Philip Fenty and starring Ron O'Neill as young Bud Priest, Carl Lee as Eddie, his partner, Sheila Fraser as Georgia, his girlfriend, Julius Harris as Scatter, his main source for drugs, and Charles McGregor as Fat Freddy. Now, I'll give you the plot and then I'll talk a little bit about the movie because I'm kind of conflicted about this movie. Which isn't a bad thing. I mean, if you have complicated feelings about a movie, it's not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, it's a 1972 black exploitation flick uh, directed by Gordon Parks Jr. Gordon Parks Jr. was the son, surprisingly enough, of Gordon Parks, who directed Shaft in 1971. So I don't know whether there was um, some nepotism going on there or not perhaps not we'll give them the benefit of the doubt movie was made on a budget of $58,000 and filmed around Harlem and um, in New York City in winter time the same as Shaft oddly enough the, the mise-en-scene is very similar to that of Shaft Ron O'Neill stars as the main character in the film Young Blood Priest who is an African American cocaine dealer who has a strong desire to exit the drug business this is coming from Wikipedia before he can exit the drug world, he has to earn enough funds to support his lifestyle as he feels that a regular 9-to-5 job will not satisfy his needs. He creates a plan to sell 30 kilos of cocaine and use the profits to sustain him while he searches for a job, which he assumes will be a difficult process due to his criminal background. Along the way, Priest has several run-ins with corrupt law enforcement. He also experiences betrayal from his close friend, Eddie. In the end, Priest is able to escape from the drug business with Georgia, his girlfriend, and walk away unharmed. Despite the controversy surrounding the film's drug use, Ron O'Neill insists that Superfly is not really about drugs. In fact, he asserts that it is the greatest anti-drug film, which, in my opinion, is bullshit. But nonetheless, the movie is very influential and has an incredible soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield and the Curtis Mayfield Experience. The funny thing about this movie and the soundtrack together is the soundtrack made more money than the movie did, which is kind of rare but is incredibly right because the soundtrack is much better than the film is. Gordon Parks Jr. isn't as good a filmmaker as his father. And the screenplay by Philip Fenty isn't all that great. There's about 43 pages to the screenplay, which is why the movie slows down a lot for people going in and out of rooms and walking to and from places. They had to kind of fill out the time because the plot and dialogue would have suited a much shorter project. But having said that, the... The two things that really make this film outstanding are, well, three. First one is Ron O'Neill is really good as Priest with his kind of long mane of straightened hair uh, receding at the front, of course. The long sideburns and the Fu Manchu moustache. He's kind of one of those iconic images of 1970s black exploitation and, and black fashion as well. The clothing is, is really good. The clothes that um, Priest wears are really stylish and fashionable for the time. And a lot of people, particularly pimps, emulated him. In fact, the car he drives, the um, Cadillac Eldorado that Priest drives, was owned by a pimp called KC, who does a cameo in the movie as a pimp. Uh, they did kind of pimp out the pimp mobile a little bit by giving the front grille a look a little bit more like a Rolls Royce. And subsequent to that happening in the movie... A lot of pimps started getting Cadillac Eldorados and really doing them up and customising them big time because they were so influenced by Superfly. Uh, one of the things about Priest is that he's also a pimp. 
Though we don't see too much of that. We see a little bit where he's threatening Fat Freddy and tells him that if he doesn't get, come with the money soon, then Priest will have his wife out hooking for him. And that's one of the things about this movie that leaves me kind of conflicted. Priest is a character that I, I find problematic in, in several ways. First off, yeah, he's about to send some guy's wife out to hook so he can get money. He's a kind of ugly side of capitalism in a, in a weird sense. One of the problems that a lot of um, critics have with the movie too is the fact that Priest has a sense of entitlement. He thinks he's entitled to this high-quality lifestyle and he's going to go out and work for it illegally because he doesn't think that the white man's going to give him a fair go at it, which may well be accurate. But he's really... Um, he thinks he's better than what he does in a lot of ways. He's got a couple of girlfriends on the hop. He's got a white girlfriend and a black girlfriend, played by Sheila Fraser. One of the problems critics have with the movie is the sexualization of um, his girlfriend in the movie, the black girlfriend, not the white girlfriend, of course. Georgia, the um, Sheila Fraser character, has a prolonged sex scene with Priest slash Ron O'Neill, whereas the white girlfriend is only seen pretty much at the start of the film. And they don't have that kind of long sex scene. But, I mean, you can look at it two ways with that. And I understand where they're coming from. But one of the reasons I think that they have that kind of longer nude in the bathtub, splashing around and, you know, sinking the sausage, is that they're trying to say that this is a more serious relationship than it was with his white girlfriend. Because ultimately, at the end of the film, Priest goes away with Georgia. So... In order to show that and to show it in a way that's lazy writing and but very much of the time is to show a prolonged sex scene. You get it a little bit in movies like Slaughter with the Stella Stevens character and um, Jim Brown's character Slaughter. You get a prolonged sex scene there to show that the relationship is serious. It's the kind of shorthand that that subgenre uses to kind of portray certain things. Now this movie came fairly early in the black exploitation cycle. I was just looking up on Wikipedia to see the movies that came before it, and they're kind of interesting. First one's a movie I saw on a very bad video, a very bad DVD that I picked up cheaply, The Black Angels, which is um, a black motorcycle gang. They came out in 1970. Some people say that they call me Mr. Tibbs. The sequel to In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier is a black exploitation film. Because stylistically it fits in with black exploitation. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I'm going to have to re-watch it. Uh, the other earlier ones are things like a movie I've talked about it before on the podcast. Cotton Comes to Harlem with Godfrey Cambridge and Remus and Jakes. And then, of course, in 1971, you got Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song with Mario Van Peebles. And you got Shaft, directed by Gordon Parks. Then, around kind of contemporary with um, Superfly... 1972 was a pretty good year for black exploitation. You've got Hitman with Bernie Casey. You've got The Legend of Nigger Charlie with Fred Williamson. Hammer with Fred Williamson again. Across 110th Street, which is really good. If you haven't seen that one, you definitely should. I've talked about it before. Black Mama, White Mama, Blackula, Slaughter and Trouble Man with Robert Hooks. Trouble Man has a fantastic soundtrack by Marvin Gaye, which is so good it gets mentioned in a Captain America movie. So you kind of got to look at those films as a subgenre and see where Superfly sits in that. And stylistically, the music, of course, this is the movie, along with Isaac Hayes' Shaft the year before, that really, really nails that 
collaboration between musicians and filmmakers in black exploitation. It's really a fantastic soundtrack. And in fact, you get to see um, Curtis Mayfield and the Curtis Mayfield experience in a nightclub scene in the movie singing Pusher Man. And that's really cool because you get to see what the outfit is. You've got a guitarist, you've got a bass guitarist, you've got a guy playing bongos and conga drums, and then you've got Curtis Mayfield doing the song. And that's kind of cool to see. Tiny little pocket stage. A lot of this film, of course, was shot on location with a $58,000 budget. You don't have a lot of money to build sets and things. So a lot of it's filmed in Harlem on location on the streets of New York, most probably around the winter of 1970, 1971. And... It, there's a beautiful documentary feel to a lot of that stuff too. This movie's got a lot going for it, but a lot of it's because of the low budget. And the main, th- there are a couple of things I really like. I like the kind of tracking shots across the streets of New York. It's documentary style. They're not sets. They're not cleaned up. You can see the dirt on the streets. You can see the garbage on the streets. You can see the people on the streets, what they wore, who they were, what they were doing. A lot of guys kind of standing around on um, steps outside apartment buildings um, a lot of small businesses and it's always interesting in these movies and I found the same thing when I was watching the documentary music documentary what stacks is to see the small businesses around small businesses are for me are a really big indication of a culture and to see the kind of you know the TV repair trucks and the other little bits and pieces the food shops and the bodegas and all that kind of thing it really does give you a sense of where this is set and who these people are to have those shots the other thing i really like in it is there's a montage of photographs showing the process of purchasing large amounts of cocaine cutting the cocaine getting it out on the street and who's buying it they're all it's all done sometimes in split screen with photographs rather than film I don't know whether they filmed it and just took out different frames of the film, but it does play really well. Now, Gordon Park Sr., the father of the director, was, before he was a filmmaker, a photographer. And I think that maybe some of that rubbed off too, because it does play pretty well. It comes up unexpectedly, because before that, you've got this kind of cinema verite thing happening on the streets of New York, and you've got priests chasing people around back alleys and across fences and up fire escapes and all sorts of stuff like that. And then you've got this scene where they kind of go into a different mode of filmmaking and have those still shots of people um, snorting cocaine, buying it, selling it. You get the whole commerce of the cocaine business in this interesting still image montage which i think works really well it's one of the bits of the movie that i really like apart from curtis mayfield and the curtis mayfield experience singing in the nightclub i really like that as well of course the movie did spawn a sequel superfly tnt which i haven't watched for a very very long time and i'm actually acquiring a copy of it now just to watch for my own pleasure but I think the, there are a couple of things that let the movie down. The first one being the script. I think the script needed another couple of run-throughs and another bit of effort to it and maybe a, a script doctor of some kind. Of course, on a $58,000 budget, that's very rarely possible. But it would have enhanced the film where possible. It would have kind of given us a stronger sense of who Priest is. And if the dialogue had been kind of just that little bit pumped up, we would have had a, a stronger sense of where he was coming from and why we should give a fuck about him. And there's a little bit of that lacking in there. Priest is not a likable character at all. And comparing it, say, to a movie like Trouble Man or Shaft or even Slaughter, 
you get a strong sense of who these people are because of their relationships to other people. And the only relationships we see priests have, in a real sense, are people he's buying and selling drugs to, people who are selling drugs for him, and his girlfriends who are mostly sexualized objects. And, of course, his friend, Eddie. There's no, in, in a weird way, Priest is alienated from his own culture. And a couple of characters um, recognise that by pointing out how pale his skin is and the fact that he straightens his hair and that kind of stuff. He, um, he does get a little bit of that colourism I mentioned earlier thrown against him, which is probably why he wants to get out. But, again, that's an underwritten part, and this is an assumption based on what I'm seeing there, rather than something that uh, seems to be a part of the script. But Superfly, you've got to come back to how important the music is for the movie. Without the music, the movie would be a second- or third-rate exploitation movie. But in cinema, this is what happens sometimes. Sometimes you get a movie that's not very good, that's kind of low-budget, under produced, underwritten, and you know, it doesn't necessarily have the chops, but it hits the screens at just the right moment in culture. And that's very much what this film did. It hit right at that point where black exploitation was starting to become a big thing, and it played really well to drive in audiences and to black audiences across America. And the soundtrack was just so at a higher level than the film itself that the gravity of it pulled the movie upward so it's kind of a, a fortunate film in the sense that that Curtis Mayfield thing happening black culture and black exploitation hitting right at the moment the film came out even though of course the filmmaker could not but be aware of it given the fact that his father had just directed a great big black exploitation movie for MGM which was incredibly successful nonetheless it's it's kind of hit the sweet spot in a lot of ways now Ron O'Neill went on to do a number of other movies uh, I think it was in the original Red Dawn in fact uh, the kind of jingoistic bullshit redneck Russia Invades America movie from the 1980s which was remade recently not very well with um, I think Chris Hemsworth was in it but um, Ron O'Neill very good stage actor from what I hear but I'm not, this is one of his early kind of film roles, and I think that maybe he was a little bit green for it. Uh, there are ways he could have played it that may have enhanced it had he had more experience at the time. And what, that brings me to one of the other problems I have with the film, and I don't mean to be kind of dismissive of it, because I know it's an important film, I know it's a lot of fun to watch. But there's no humour at all in this movie. There's the, one of the things you know about black exploitation movies of various kinds is there has got to be that kind of wry moment of humour. I don't mean necessarily going all the way to Dolomite and having most of it being humour, including the um, lead actor. But if you look at Shaft, there's little moments of humour between Vic Anderosi and John Shaft. There's um, some nice stuff in a bar, no-name bar in... Um, you get it in Slaughter. You get it in any number of these black exploitation movies. You have that little kind of leavening of intrinsic black humour to them which this movie doesn't have it takes itself a little too seriously even though of course it's about a pimp cum cocaine dealer trying to get out of the business still there was room there for just that kind of lightness in there and to have that kind of three dimensions third dimension brought to Priest by showing that he's a man with a, a sense of humour as well but 
because of the way it's written, you don't get that. And I think that's a major failing in this movie. It's one of the things that lets it down a lot and doesn't make it where it you would expect it to be, had it been made a lot better. Now, let's see. I'm trying, just trying to wondering where... Um, while I'm thinking about that, I was trying to think of where black exploitation jumped the shark. And as far as I can see, the kind of point where it started going downhill was probably around 1975, 1976. So it's a genre with a very short lifespan. It's got the lifespan of a kind of a canary, really. Uh, there were there are movies, of course, there are post exploitation movies as well but the kind of arc of black exploitation is a period of about five make arguably six years which is kind of sad because i like black exploitation movies i saw a lot of them at the time so very much they're a kind of formative cinematic influence for me but they're so brief and there are so many ways that culture now sees them differently than they were seen at the time there were there are a number of people that see them as being racist there are a number of people that are seeing as being stereotypical of course and as there's that aspect of colorism about them as well which makes the reaction of people and you know i'm willing to say that people of color are going to view black exploitation movies in a, a number of different ways differently than me a white boy living on the other side of the planet so i'm fully aware of that but i like them i like the fact that they showed me places that i didn't get to go to until the late 1990s and i like the kind of energy and the primitivism of them and i don't mean that in any racial sense but black exploitation movies with the exception of the big studio ones were guerrilla filmmaking they were fairly low budget they were shot on the streets they were shot with actors who didn't have a high profile at the time and who got a chance to learn the business and to um you know, apply their trade in a lot of ways it gave opportunities to black stuntmen and women of colour to musicians that got them a lot more prominence than they had previously and filmmakers from actors through the whole production team got a chance with this kind of movies so in that and also they're bloody entertaining which is another thing as well they've got all of the things that i liked in movies in the 1970s they had action they had smart dialogue in a lot of cases they had nudity they had violence they had good music and that's you know that's a pretty nice setup for an entertaining film if all of those things line up nicely and black exploitation movies punched above their weight and all of those aspects including the nudity i suppose but uh just to kind of wrap it up for superfly it's important for a number of reasons most of which are to do with it kind of being in that sweet spot of the right time the right place lucking into curtis mayfield as the composer of the soundtrack and the kind of style of them rather than the substance now i don't like priest as a character i'm going to watch um superfly tnt just to see how that goes there was another superfly movie made in the late 1990s which had samuel L. jackson in a small role of course i'm going to have to revisit that one at some stage when i can find a copy of it but i'm not looking forward to it if you know what i mean i'm not sure it's going to be kind of right if anybody's got any opinions about the 1990 i think 1998 1999 superfly movie let me know will you uh but anyway i'm going to wrap it up for superfly there 
it's again a seminal movie, an important movie in some ways, but I can see some missed opportunities there, which were probably due to the circumstances around the making of it. So I'm going to take another break. Now, when I get back, we're going to talk about a very different movie from the 1980s, which is Blue Thunder, directed by John Batham and starring Roy Scheider, Daniel Stern and Malcolm McDowell. Kind of like the idea of it. No guns, no kicking in doors, and, you know, just quiet. Oh, yeah. For Frank Murphy, policing the air has its ups. Hustle air support. And downs. You got a runaway. Well, I just wanted to say, sir, that that was my fault. I talked Murphy into taking us there. You're supposed to be stupid, son. Don't abuse the privilege. Roy Scheider is Frank Murphy, a lone wolf. Freeze! Bozo, how many regulars come in the front door with a key? Who's about to become a guinea pig. I thought it was illegal to arm police helicopters. Well, that would depend on the circumstances, wouldn't it? Columbia Pictures presents Blue Thunder. A flying arsenal that hears through walls, sees in the dark, and thinks your thoughts. Wherever you look, the guns follow. It was designed for war-torn countries. One civilian dead for every ten terrorists. That's an acceptable ratio, unless you're one of the civilians. It was assigned to American cities. You're talking about crowd control from the air? That's what this special detail is all about. They told Murphy to test it. They didn't tell him what it was for. Doesn't have these coppers and you could run the whole damn country. Who was behind it? Where are we? Federal building. Really? Hey, you want to find out what's going on in there? We certainly do. Hey, you gotta do me a favor. I want you to pick up a package for me. Why they chose him. Uh, he's totally unsuitable for our purpose. Don't stop for anything or anybody. For why they changed their minds. You turn the face over and all the fire. I saw this guy before in my life. Come on, let's go. Well, not so fast. That's government property. Give me that. But when Murphy went looking for answers... You got all this on tape? I got every word of it. If it gets back to me, I'll deny it. The answer... Uh-oh, uh-oh. ...came looking for him. plan but Murphy stole their thunder Blue Thunder there we go Blue Thunder is a 1983 action adventure film written by um, Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby, starring Roy Scheider, Daniel Stern, Warren Oates, who's a great favourite of mine, and Malcolm McDowell. Now, I'll grab the plot from Wikipedia one more time and uh, just kind of go through it. Let's see what we've got. 
Frank Murphy, Roy Scheider, is a Los Angeles Police Department helicopter pilot officer and troubled Vietnam War veteran with PTSD. His newly assigned field partner, Richard Lumengood, whose nickname is Jaffo, played by Daniel Stern, the two patrol Los Angeles at night by helicopter and give police assistance to police forces on the ground. Murphy is selected to pilot the world's most advanced helicopter nicknamed Blue Thunder, a military-style combat helicopter intended for police use in surveillance and against possible large-scale civil disobedience during the forthcoming 1984 Olympic Games. With powerful armoured stealth technology that allows it to fly virtually undetected and other accoutrements such as infrared radar, powerful microphones and cameras and a U-matic VCR, Blue Thunder appears to be a formidable tool on the war on crime. Murphy notes wryly that there, with enough of these helicopters you could run the whole damn country. But with the death of City Councilman Diane McNeely turns out to be more than just a random murder, Murphy begins his own covert investigation. He discovers that a subversive action group is intending in, instead to use Blue Thunder in a military role to quell disorder under the project codename Thor, Tactical Helicopter Offensive offensive response and is secretly eliminating political opponents to advance their agenda that's as far as i'm going with that the movie also has a very synthy score by arthur b rubenstein which kind of gets repetitive after a while um it's really kind of very typical 1980s action film score and people of course have a certain nostalgia for that me less so i think it's a kind of minimalist but not really incredibly good score and after a while it kind of does get to the stage of not this fucking thing again as far as I'm concerned but anyway on to the movie now there's a couple of ways you can view this movie one of which is of course action film 1980s action film holds up pretty well the blu-ray I got is I think from Mill Creek uh, and it's a pretty good bare bones release really nice transfer of the movie and thank you to the Patreon subscribers who actually, whose donations help pay for it. Uh, I like the movie. Uh, uh, the thing is, yeah, you can view it as 1980s tech porn and militaristic technology porn at a certain level. And it's a perfectly valid interpretation of it as well. There is some very, very good helicopter stunt work in this film. Particularly bits of it which were done uh, on and around the Los Angeles River, which is, of course, that enormous kind of concreted in creek that runs down the middle of la it's iconic from a number of uh films including them it's where the giant ants came out in los angeles in the movie them if you remember in a movie which is one of my great kind of vulgar pleasures of science fiction in the 21st century the core hillary swank lands a space shuttle on the los angeles river which is kind of cool and yeah it's just one of those iconic settings and having um, a couple of helicopters, so in fact three helicopters zooming underneath the bridges on the LA River is a very cool piece of stunt work. It really does um, work very, very well. As I said, it was directed by John Batham, who started out with that piece of shit known as Saturday Night Fever, and I don't like that movie at all. Uh, before that, he did the Bingo Long Travelling All-Stars and Motor Kings in 1976, which I think had Richard Pryor in it. I'm just going to click on the Wikipedia and see whether memory is failing me. Yep, Richard Pryor is in it, and Billy D. Williams as well. 
But uh, Batam also directed a number of other things, including War Games in 1983, same year as Blue Thunder. Really should do War Games on a podcast, because I do like that one. American Flyers, Short Circuits, Stakeout, Bird on a Wire, Point of No Return, which I think was called something else in Australia. Um, Another Stakeout, Drop Zone, Nick of Time. And he actually did an episode of the Arrow TV series in 2015. So his career's kind of gone on an arc there and uh, moved on to other things. But Blue Thunder, I think, works well. One of the reasons is, of course, it's got a very good script by Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby, who wrote it in the late 1970s because they were living in the Los Angeles Hills and police helicopters were buzzing around their neighbourhood a lot. So they decided to write a movie about it. Now, Dan O'Bannon... You like for a number of things, including uh, Dark Star, of course. He was co-writer on that. Uh, he did the special effects on Star Wars, but we'll forgive him that. He wrote Alien. He wrote um, two segments of the heavy metal movie 1981, Life Force, which is an incredibly bad but fun movie. Invaders from Mars, the 1986 remake of that. Total Recall, he co-wrote. And let's see what else. Uh, Screamers in 1995. So, you know, he's kind of... Um, did a really um, nice little bit of genre work there. Died of Crohn's disease in 2009, which is unfortunate, but I really do like some of O'Bannon's work, and I think that he's kind of got his place in science fiction cinema. But this one uh, uses, and right at the start of the movie, tells you it uses uh, available technology. So a technology that was available in 1983 is the stuff that's used in this movie. The um, helmets, which kind of, the guns that are, which are wired to the gun at the front of the helicopter and kind of move around as your head moves. That's one of the aspects of it. The uh, surveillance technology that marks the infrared scanners, um, all of that kind of stuff, and the stealth mode for the helicopter were all existing technologies at the time. And you've got to think that now here we are, what, 33 years later, the technologies have got to be even more advanced and creepier these days than they were in 1983. Now, the villain of the piece, of course, is Malcolm McDowell, who seems an odd choice for this, given the fact that he's in the American military and doesn't even slightly attempt to change his accent at all, uh, which is possibly for the best. His character's name is Colonel Cochrane. And, uh, yeah, he's he's a usual smirking Malcolm McDowell villain. Uh, Not particularly nuanced, but um, Malcolm McDowell, even though he's been very good in a number of things, was never subtle in his acting. But uh, the other people in the uh, movie are pretty good. Of course, you've got Roy Scheider playing Murphy. And there were a lot of cops called Murphy in the 1980s, one of whom became Robocop. Uh, then you got Warren Oates playing Captain Braddock, his boss, and Warren Oates having a lot of fun with this, even though he isn't really given his head and allowed to be the kind of Warren Oates lovable loser that we like. This is one of his later roles where he played more authoritarian figures, and he gets to some of the best dialogue in the movie, chewing out Murphy and Jaffo when they do something wrong during the film. So it's nice to see him in there. Candy Clark playing the girlfriend Kate. 
and Candy Clark. I like from a lot of things. Of course, she was in the Man that Fell to Earth. She was also in Cue the Winged Serpent and a number of other things. Kind of, you know, an interesting actor, and I really like her in a lot of films. Then you've got, of course, Daniel Stern, who went on to do Home Alone and a bunch of other things. He also co-starred about two years, a year or so after this, in another movie with Malcolm McDowell, which kind of referenced Blue Thunder, and that's one of the cult favourites for a lot of people, Get Crazy, the Alan Arkush um, rock concert comedy from uh, about 1984, I think it is. And they've got a whole bunch of good supporting characters in there. Ed Bernard, Ed Bernard sorry, playing Sergeant Short. Uh, you know his face from a lot of things. Joe Santos, who played the copper on the Rockford Files for a long time, playing another of the helicopter pilots. And just some very memorable faces, including an actor that I really like a lot, Anthony James, playing one of the main villains. Now, Anthony James was in a whole bunch of different things. Include, he was one of the villains in the second Naked Gun movie, for instance. He was in Unforgiven, a movie called Wacko. He also played the gay hitchhiker in Vanishing Point in a very kind of negative portrayal of gay people. You know, he kind of was a tall, skinny guy with receding hair and pockmarked face and very striking features. Really interesting actor. He's now an artist in New York City and he's um, a very well-regarded artist, which is kind of a nice career move for him. But to get back to Blue Thunder, um, I like it. I I like the action part of it. There's some bits that are a bit problematic. There's a voyeuristic aspect when, at first, Murphy and Jaffo get the helicopter. They do a couple of voyeuristic things, like looking down the cleavage of a waitress in a um, driving cafe and a couple of other bits and pieces like that, which are slightly creepy from our point of view. But once they realise what the technology is that they have, there's a kind of turning around there. And Murphy, being a lot wiser about these things than Jaffo is, really starts to wonder why they're using this technology, even though the Olympics are coming up and they're going to need kind of more advanced technology for policing. Why they're using this particular technology and why they've got Cochrane involved, because Cochrane and Murphy have a history in Vietnam. We see a little flashback of that which is kind of underplayed, but shows one aspect of the Vietnam War, which is factual, but very negative. Um, Throwing prisoners out of helicopters from a great height was something that was done particularly by some covert ops people during the Vietnam War. And in fact, it is still done by various covert um, instrumentalities in the world one of the nice ways of getting rid of a body for instance is taking it out to sea in a helicopter and dropping it in the drink and there is some fairly strong evidence that that's occurred um, as a part of the war on terror so in a sense that brings me to the other part of this movie and that is that it's a, a political film as well it's not really just an action flick there's a political aspect to it as well and it even though it doesn't address them heavily it does kind of at least take a brief glimpse at surveillance technologies and how they're used by um, the police and the military and it actually questions whether this is a good thing showing the technology at the time this movie came out these technologies were cutting edge and being and having a police helicopter that can go into whisper mode and hover unheard outside a building and listen in on what's going on inside the building was seen at the time as a very intrusive technology. These ways with internet 
enroaching on the privacy of people in a lot more intrusive ways than a helicopter. It's maybe less shocking than it was at the time. But nonetheless, it does show the start of that looking at surveillance technologies. I mean, movies like The Conversation did this as well, looking at surveillance technologies and what people's rights should be and what are the negative possible political and social implications of breaching privacy. The other side of this, of course, is the fact that the helicopter is basically a gunship. Now, the the helicopter used in the movie is an interesting one, and it's one with which I have a slight history, and that is the Aerospatial Gazelle. Aerospatial is a French company that makes very, very good helicopters, a lot of them for military use. And around the time this movie was being made, maybe maybe about eight years later, I was buying parts for Aerospatial Gazelles and other Aerospatial helicopters for the Australian military. I was working as a civilian um, public servant in the materiel section of um, the Australian Army and later on in the Air Force. Uh, they were in buildings next to each other, so it wasn't that big a, a move. So I was buying um, spare parts for these kind of helicopters at one stage in my career, during the first Gulf War, in fact. And I did get in trouble for sending a peace symbol made out of zeros to all the users on the very, very primitive intranet they had in the um, office in St Kilda Road, Melbourne at the time. They really didn't like me doing that. But uh, that's probably why I stopped working for military procurement. Nonetheless, um, uh, this movie's got a lot going for it. As I said, the stunt work is spectacularly good. None of it, of course, is special effects work. There is a little bit of kind of split screen as... um, and, and maybe a bit of model work as the F-16 fighter jets come in over LA. There's a little bit of that kind of stuff. But apart from that, most of it is physical effects with real helicopters over the Los Angeles, which makes it kind of interesting. There are some scenes that uh, are shot very well, which make it appear as if the actors are flying the helicopters. And that, that's done very well as well. Some of it, of course, is um, reprojection work. But a lot of it is kind of the actors sitting in the helicopters and reacting to things and pretending to drive the thing. And, uh, yeah, there's a verisimilitude to this that really works well. And there's a retro aspect to it as well. The technology is, of course, the 1980s stuff with the very primitive CRT screens and great big pneumatic um, video cassettes in cartridges underneath the helicopter being used as a way of recording the surveillance video and audio and uh, there's a kind of retro interesting thing what would you call 1980s technology stuff yeah crt punk cathode ray tube punk pneumatic punk or something like that there's got to be a, a stylistic name for the kind of technological aesthetics of 1980s cinema someone think of one up for me but um, having said that, the, the movie plays well. I think the ending's a bit curtailed when you see Murphy walking away from some wreckage uh, and then there's a voiceover. It's a bit of lazy filmmaking there at the end. Um, I'm not as optimistic about the ending as this movie seems to be. It's got a very Hollywood ending in a sense. Um, they, the fact that the heroes being whistleblowers actually get away with it is not something that plays well to a modern viewpoint where whistleblowers as we know are imprisoned and silenced and all sorts of other things 
particularly when they're giving away civil and military secrets. I'm thinking Edward Snowden, Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning when I'm talking about this. In some ways, we live in very much nastier times these days than they did in the 1980s. Or maybe that was just Hollywood kind of whitewashing and um, kind of giving Hollywood endings to movies of this sort, which did nod towards criticising the status quo, but not really kind of going the distance with it and not really taking the movie where the plot would have naturally led it. I think that uh, it's probably not naivete that made them do that. There's a, there are commercial considerations as well. And also to get the cooperation of certain authorities, they may well have had to curtail some of the criticism of what used to be in the good old days be called the military-industrial complex. But the acting is good. I mean, Scheider was a charismatic bastard at the best of times. And in this one, his Murphy's not too far away from Martin Brody in Jaws. A little bit away, but um, you know, you've still got that kind of smoothness that Scheider brings to it. Uh, Daniel Stern's pretty good as the geeky, gawky Jaffo. And uh, that, of course, is an acronym, that name. I won't do that. Uh, it's good to see Warren Oates and Joe Santos and Anthony James and people like that in these kind of movies. They do cement them at a certain period of time in my mind. But there's a fondness for seeing these character actors and a lot of other familiar faces as well in these roles. Uh, and you go, oh, geez, there's what's his name? And I kind of like that as well. And, of course, Malcolm McDowell playing a, a typical Malcolm McDowell-type bastard, which is very cool as well. This isn't a big or an important film. It's very much of its time. It's parallel. The plot is pretty much the same as many, many action films of the time, with the difference being that it's set with helicopters, in helicopters for a large part of the film. There are things that dated, of course. Um, having stuff hidden in a dumpster in a drive-in movie theatre isn't something you can do these days, given that drive-in movie theatres are pretty rare. But it is nice to see a car chase across those bumps on a drive-in movie theatre. You get it in a number of films. Alvin Purple, the Australian sex comedy, has one. This movie has one as well. Drive-in movies are a kind of cultural touchstone for the period before people could take home movies. I think Melbourne, which now has a population of about 6 million people, has maybe three drive-ins within 100 kilometres of the city, which is a shame because drive-in movies are... Yeah, you know, a night out experience. There's kind of a you know, a working class niceness about going to a drive-in movie. I think uh, Melbourne is problematic this time of year because you'd freeze your fucking ass off. I remember going to the drive-in at one stage in maybe late '90s and seeing some films, and there was a problem because people would turn on the heaters in their car and run their batteries flat. So you'd have to go around and jumpstart all these people who had flat car batteries at the end of the night so that they could drive their cars home. And there were a whole bunch of different people with jumper leads kind of nosing their car up to some other idiot's car so that they could um, jumpstart the cars. So I think if Sal and I ever go to drive in somewhere around Melbourne, we're probably going to do it about spring or autumn or maybe summertime if it doesn't get too hot, just so we don't have the hassle of jumpstarting idiot's cars. But just to summarise, I do like Blue Thunder. It played pretty well rewatching it. There were, apart from those little voyeuristic kind of guy things, it didn't play particularly offensive. Uh, kind of like Superfly, it's a little bit of a sausage fest. There aren't any really strong female characters. Though I do like Candy Clark because she played her usual kind of role, kind of tender but feisty woman who 
doesn't take more shit from her man than she absolutely has to. And she actually is a good foil for Roy Scheider's Murphy as well. I think they play off each other really nicely. And uh, the actors do bring that kind of sense of a relationship to it. It's one of those little bits in a film where you want to see more of it, even though the action stuff is really great and yeah, doing a somersault, a vertical somersault in a helicopter is cool. And seeing a helicopter trying to a guy in a helicopter trying to outsmart a couple of F sixteen fighter jets is a lot of fun as well. Yeah, you know, all of those things are fun, but I really would have liked to see more of the relationship stuff between Candy Clark's character and Murphy. I think that would have been a, a lot of fun. But with that one proviso about the kind of voyeurism stuff, it does play well. The movie does play well to a modern audience. And given that we now know more about the use of military technologies in civilian policing than they did, of course, in 1983, the movie does have an extra resonance there and an extra kind of level of awareness about the perils of this kind of thing. We're more knowledgeable about that than people were at the time. And for that reason, it kind of strengthens the arguments made in the movie against using military technology for civilian policing. But yeah, it's, it's a, and apart from that, it's a good action film too. I mean, taking away the political stuff, yeah, it's still a good action film. And it does work pretty well. There was a TV series made of Blue Thunder, which lasted about four months and really, apart from the fact that it had a slightly interesting cast, isn't very memorable. It was a usual kind of 60-minute long TV series. Um, James Ferentino played the protagonist. Dana Carvey played Jaffo in the, there. Dana Carvey in a kind of um, comic relief role. It also had Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus in it as well. Let's see how many episodes it ran. Uh, 11 episodes it ran. Didn't do very well. It was on ABC. And, uh, yeah, it kind of died in the ass very quickly and used a lot of stock footage, apparently, from the 1983 film, which shows the kind of budget that it was produced on. But anyway, um, we're going to wrap up the podcast now. That's about it for this one. Uh, the two lighter films, but I, I did enjoy them. I didn't want to kind of go heavy again. And, uh, as I said, Superfly kind of, you know, spoiled by the, the kind of limitations of the budget and the writing. Blue Thunder, much better film. Uh, shows that also you, the interesting parallels between how the world was perceived at a street level in 1972 as opposed to 1983, which is only 11 years difference. And the cultural differences, even though, of course, one set in New York, one set in LA, the cultural differences and the differences in the way that things are perceived was vast. That decade really did ring a lot of changes, uh, not necessarily for the better, in popular culture particularly. But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up now. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to the wonderful Patreon supporters who support the podcast with their pocket change every month so that I can buy movies like Blue Thunder or Blu-ray. Uh, and thank you and uh, to everyone out there. Have a good uh, fortnight until I talk to you next time look after yourselves, reach out to people if you need help, if you're able to help other people, reach out to them there's a lot of negative stuff going on on the internet at the moment and what we'd like, what I'd like for the podcast listeners is if there's somebody that needs a hand, even if you just kind of say, hi, how are you on the internet you're doing a good thing, you're showing the positive side of net culture you're being part of the solution to 
some very large problems that we have. Even though people dismiss people saying positive things or putting across positive messages on the internet, it creates a kind of idea culture that we're all in this together. We're all the same people. Kid, people just you know love their families. They want the best for the world. They want to enjoy life and you know, have hope for the future. All of that kind of stuff we can all get on board with, and we really should. And uh, look after yourselves. And as usual, here are the podcast credits in the style of movie credits. And I'll catch you guys later. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.